0: To the extent that you can get those opinion leaders as your early adopters, it creates a wave of transition that is not unlike peer pressure in a good way, right? I mean, it creates a a social proof that, hey, look what they're doing and it's working. Really what we want to do is get beyond that tipping point for change and, and influence and persuade in the direction that we want to see happen.
1: Hello, I'm Brian Gorman. Welcome to Conversations. With me today is Quantivost coach, Rick Carter. Welcome, Rick. Rick, before we get started with this conversation on influence and influencers and persuasion, can you tell us what brought you to coaching and why this particular topic has your interest at this time?
0: long time ago, when I was in graduate school, I was at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and we were doing what at the time were kind of a brand new approach, which was assessment centers. This was uh, mid to late 80s. And among the things that I absolutely loved was doing assessments and then giving feedback on assessments. And I had the opportunity at that time to complete my degree and then did a a variety of different types of um, management consulting and kept circling around to basically giving people feedback on their assessments and really fell in love with that part of the one-on-one work. And it ultimately went from just feedback to feedback with follow-up meetings, which in essence, once once you build that out a little bit, is executive coaching. And throughout my career, whether I was in management development, whether I was VP of HR in various places, I always circled back and found myself really enjoying working one-on-one with people and helping them with whatever their
1: career objectives were. So how does influence come into the story? I've
0: always been interested in kind of the psychological part of it. My degree's in industrial organizational psychology, and I, and I absolutely love the psychology behind things. And one of the things that fascinated me is the idea of leadership, but the idea of leadership as influence and leadership as persuasion, because without that, you really don't have leadership. I love those ideas, but I also love the idea of using language and particular types of language in order to bring about the objectives that you're trying to do to pull people together, both as individuals and and as a collective, to achieve the objectives uh, of the group and of the uh, organization. Recently, what I have found is there seems to be particular interest in what I would call either charismatic leadership or uh, executive presence. And really a big part of that is people saying, I want to have more of an influence in my group. I want to have more of an influence in the organization. I want to be able to persuade in a more concise and accurate manner. What I have heard more recently has been influence, interest in influence, interest in persuasion, and so I, I kind of have been more recently been able to focus on that, and and that's when kind of you and I got together and said, you know, it might be an interesting topic to talk about since it seems to be really of great interest at this point in time.
1: And what was interesting to me when we got together to have that conversation was that we are historically have been looking at this topic through two very different lenses. So you're talking about influence and persuasion. You're really looking at at this from a leadership perspective. (laughs) And my early experience with it actually came when i was a management consultant at kpmg and we had a strategic alliance with a company that did organizational network analysis ona organizational network analysis really is a technology based way of building a map of who has influence in the organization what is so incredible about it is that it tells the truth that it very often isn't the leaders right. who have the influence just one map that I recall that I use in training now was a small organization of about 100 people, the most influential of whom was a purchasing agent. I really want us to talk about influence and influencers from both perspectives yeah, because right. just today I was coaching a client who is several levels organizationally below the person she has to influence, mm-hmm. the sponsor of of this initiative and she is a woman of color in a male dominated, white Caucasian dominated uh, institution. So we spent some time talking about who does have influence with this leader that she can leverage to get him to behave in the way that the organization needs him to behave in order to make this change successful.
0: One of the folks I've been working with very recently is in a position where she's a mid-level manager and it it sounds fairly similar. She's a mid level manager, and she wants to influence upward, but not only her direct, you know, the person to whom she reports, but above that and above that, and is interested in restructuring her part of the organization. What she wants to do is figure out how to make this very impactful. And she sent me her original ideas, and what we're doing is kind of repackaging it using some of these real basic principles of persuasion to make sure that she's able to make as powerful an impact in as powerful a presentation as she possibly could, which brings up a thought. One of the things when talking about persuading or influencing, some of these are, are techniques or tools that you can use, and they always have with them the question when I'm talking to folks about persuasion particularly is, well, isn't it unethical to use these tools and techniques? And they can be used unethically. When you're um, influencing in a one-on-one situation, when you're influencing in a one-on-group situation, or a, or a one-on-larger, larger group situation, we're going to assume that there are truthful and uh, honorary motivations between what you're trying to do. So this individual that I'm working with, she truly believes and can demonstrate why this reorganization, this restructuring, is in the best interest of the organization. So she's not doing it to try to, you know, become the, the all-powerful being in, in her group, but rather is saying, hey, if I really, really believe in this and I want to bring it about, what are some of the things that I can be sure to do to make sure that my message is coming through as powerfully as it possibly can.
1: I want to reemphasize that point because I think it's so important. Back when I was in graduate school, we had a book for one of my classes that I will never forget the title. It was called The Sensitive Manipulator. And the real message of the book was we are all persuading, we are all trying to influence people all the time, very often unconsciously, sometimes consciously. The challenge is the ethics and the challenge is the tools and techniques that we use. It isn't, should we ever be trying to influence and persuade? Because we are. Certainly, it gives us some foundation for working. I want to shift our focus a little bit and talk about a model that I have found very useful. The model comes from the book Influencer, The New Science of Leading Change by the best-selling authors of Crucial Conversations, Joseph Grenny, Kerry Patterson, David Maxfield, Ron McMillan, Alice Switzler. One of the very early lessons that I learned in organizational change management is that there are two primary factors that underlie resistance to change in organizations. One is willingness or motivation, and the other is ability. What I love about this model, and I think how you execute elements of this model come out of the work that you have just been talking about, but what I love about this model is it looks at those two factors, motivation or willingness and ability, and it looks at them at three levels, personal motivation personal ability, social at the collective level. How do you influence motivation? How do you influence ability? And then the third is structural. From a structural perspective, how do we help people develop the ability that they need? From a motivational perspective, how do we structurally uh, influence people? So part of all this is realizing who does have the influence. Several things come to mind. One is,
0: and you and I have talked about this once before, is that idea of the classic from, I don't know, 1980 or so article. Uh, it was when Tom Peters was at, I think, the Boston Group, and they created what was called a 7S model of organizations, and they talk about alignment of strategy, structure, system, styles, staffing, selection, and superordinate goal. And what they're saying is there is think comprehensively, think system-wide. In order for that to happen, you need to think a lot of different components and consider how all of them are aligned What I always call aligned on purpose. What is the purpose of what we're trying to do, and how do we align behind that? One of the things on persuasion that I'll tell people all the time is to think very, very carefully of the words you use. If you instantly want to get someone to not hear what you're saying, if you need to say, We're going to change around here. Things are going to change around here. You know, you might as well tell them, get your resumes ready, because that's what they're thinking, is, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to lose something. People will oftentimes perceive change, impending change, as potential loss. And what I tell people, what I'll tell leaders is very rarely do you have a dramatic change in the workplace. What you're more likely to have is transition. If I say we're going to have changes here, people are frightened and they're not going to hear anything I say after that. If we say we're going to introduce a few transitions here, or we're going to transition from A to B. We're evolving. We're transitioning all the time. Change is more likely to, it's almost as if you hit the mute button after that and people are not going to hear what you're saying.
1: And more and more, we talk about transformational change.
0: I once heard someone at at a large gathering, it was a large leadership offsite, the speaker, the CEO saying how we're going to change and we're going to improve and we're going to think of ourselves differently. He says, I want each of you to, to work yourselves out of a job, which I had been talking to him in advance. I knew what he was saying. I knew that he was advocating for advancing folks and really changing the way, <laughs> transforming the way we were doing business. It was healthcare at the time. But once he said that, and you could have pushed the mute button on the microphone because until you know the, the big talk at noon was people saying, I'm not going to have a job. I have to work myself out of my job. He had a great idea that was poorly presented. It was a poor word choice. It was inadequate mm-hmm. information. But with that change, he thought people would understand. And he was unable to persuade after that because of his indelicate choice of a phrase. Yep. Can you talk a little bit more about the motivation and ability and the, the different uh, individual ideas as it relates to influence?
1: Absolutely. It is a research-based book. At the personal level, and and this is typically where organizational change management thinks and, and, and tries to play, the message typically is the leader has to exercise consequences. Right. And in fact... We know this, that this is true. If, if the entire sales force is moving from calling in their orders to administrative assistants who are entering them into the computer to entering their own orders in on a tablet and the top salesperson says, I don't have time filling this technology stuff. If you say that's okay, you don't have to because you're the best producer. The message is very clear. I'm undervalued. I'm looked at differently than that person. And you must not be all that serious about this or everyone will be held to the same standard. So at the personal level, one of the typical change management approaches is around consequences. But again, I think there are a lot of other ways that you can approach this. I get motivated by learning. Very often, organizations will approach motivation with dollars. Right, That may or may not be a motivator for people.
0: That's particularly true when we look at the generational research that's, that's done, where folks who have been in their careers for a while, more highly tenured people, people who have been in the workplace longer, more highly tenured, are more likely to believe that dollars are going to motivate particularly other people particularly younger people and they can't understand why if i'm paying more people aren't going to put in more effort put in more work because dollars are not always the powerful reward that we assume that it will be when you said that about particularly the example of the you know putting in your own orders it reminded me, there's there's one, it's a PDF that's online that I go back to time and again. It's called the One Sentence Persuasion Course, and it summarizes persuasion. It's by Blair Warren, and what he says, he makes a statement, and then he backs it up time and again. It says, people will do anything for those who will encourage their dreams, allay their fears, justify failures, confirm their suspicions, or help them throw rocks at their enemies. What, I, what made me think about that is encouraging the dreams is when you tell folks, you know, what we have found or what research has indicated is that if you can enter your sales on these tablets directly, you can increase your sales twofold, threefold, 50%, whatever. But the extent to which you can encourage a dream by saying, how many of you would like to improve your, or increase your sales? Chances are all the hands are going to go up. And you could say, well, good news. We can help you fulfill your dreams of rapidly increasing your sales without you know, changing anything else you're doing just by using these tablets, chances are you're going to get half of the staff trampling you to get to the, to get to the iPads in order to enter, start entering their own, their own sales.
1: I want to stay in that personal motivation for a minute with a bit of a different perspective, picking up on what you're saying. Just wrote a piece the other day around quiet quitting. Mm-hmm. The statistics around not engaged and disengaged in the workplace are incredible. They're incredibly abysmal. Mm. A lot of what we are seeing and understanding through the research driving the great resignation is there's no purpose in the work that I'm doing. I'm not seen as valued asset Almost inevitably, when I ask a manager, why do the people who work for you get up in the morning and come to work? The answer is, I have no idea. Or I think this, or it's most likely that, which is the same as I really have no idea. Yeah, right. right. If you're my supervisor, you know what my vision is that I want to live into. And you can align what you're asking me to do with that vision. If you can align what you're asking me to do with that passion, I have all the motivation you'll ever need. I have all the commitment to you that you'll ever need and to what you're asking me to do and to the quality of the work. I want to take this back to the money thing a bit because most of us in the Boomer generation, most of us Mm -hmm. of that age, grew up with parents who grew up in the depression. Yes, We grew up with a scarcity mentality, job security. My father used to chide me all the time because I would move from job to job. My sister had two employers her entire career. My right. brother had one. The younger workers grew up in a different generation with with different drivers. Managers need to know that to know how to motivate them.
0: Two things pop into my mind. One is reciprocity. If you're willing to say, here's a training program or here's here's a learning opportunity for you, they will feel obligated and say, you know what? This guy knows what I want and I feel obliged. I feel indebted because he or she has taken the time to find out what matters to me. That also builds into that idea of liking. I must be important to them because they, they have asked me. They're operating in a way that will help me bring about what it is I want to achieve, they're not just throwing money at me. They're not assuming that I'm like their parents, but it brings that idea of they care for me, liking, right? That idea of my manager must like me. I like them because they're interested in me. They pay attention. They have a presence when we're talking.
1: At that personal level. At a personal level. This touches both motivation and ability. I want to call out, and I call this out often, 2016 Gallup did a research study on how millennials want to work and live. And they identified six significant culture shifts. And three of them are really important here. From my paycheck to my purpose. Relate to me, not about the money, but about why I'm here. From my satisfaction to my development. And from my annual review to ongoing conversations. It's interesting just heard recently that Microsoft is no longer addressing employee engagement. Their new focus is employee thriving. And that defines a very different relationship between the person and the organization, the person and the services in the organization, the person and the person or people they report to, the person and the colleagues. Am I thriving?
0: Right. And what's interesting about that too is is how that will be it probably is and, and will continue to be a competitive advantage that's a strategy an organizational strategy absolutely which is fascinating to think that that's that's how they will continue to to dominate
1: their market so let's move to the social level on this model okay social motivation it comes from that kind of persuasion that you're talking about it comes from those individuals in the organization and the collective that can influence behaviors, influence mindsets. Early on in our conversation, I talked about organizational network analysis. Mm -hmm. Great tool, complex tool, expensive tool to use. There's a very easy alternative version to that, which is just start to ask people, when you want to know what's really going on here, who do you talk to? Those are the persuaders, those are the influencers that you want early on on whatever it is that you're working on. What we're learning now is the true value of that because as C-suite as, as senior executives, as mid-level managers, we don't know what it's going to what the impact of this is going to be on the front line we don't know what it's going to take to actually execute this change and so using influencers knowing who they are yes that's what we're looking for yeah people who provide encouragement to try this new way of thinking this new way of doing it. yeah and then ability at the social levels is providing assistance so again companies that are providing coaching that are providing mentoring. To the extent that you can get
0: those opinion leaders as your early adopters, it creates a wave of transition that is not unlike peer pressure in a good way, right? I mean, it creates a, a social proof that, hey, look what they're doing and it's working. Really what we want to do is get beyond that tipping point for change and and influence and persuade in the direction that we want to see happen.
1: Yeah, just two very quick things around that bigger picture of organizational network analysis. Mm -hmm. Back when I was at KPMG and they were introducing the technology to us and then we could decide whether we were going to train and use it, Mm -hmm. they used two examples. One of their clients at the time was the Drug Enforcement Agency and they would plug wiretap information into the organizational network analysis software. And from that, they could explore how to dismantle a drug ring because it wasn't taking out the top person. Not that they didn't want to do that. But there are those connectors inside the organization that when you remove them, the relationships fall apart. Wow. The other was a company that, and we're talking about the late 1980s, was very prideful about the women who had broken the glass ceiling. And so they did an organizational network analysis to demonstrate what they had achieved, except that's not what it showed. Yes, there were women in high high level positions in the organization not only were they disconnected from the influencers and the decision makers they were even disconnected from one another oh my goodness want to jump back just for one moment to social encouragement one of the ways a lot of organizations are doing that, some effectively, some not, are employee resource groups. It's not a new idea, but it, is, it seems to be taking more and more root. So we've got a, a people of color resource group. We have affinity groups. Yeah. And when they are well used, they can influence those employees because they're helping to provide psychological safety, yep. helping to surface where psychological safety doesn't exist so that the organization can address it and so forth.
0: And the techniques to advance in an organization, how to make a positive impact, could be very different for, you know, if I, I think of an organization that I'm working with, it has a, I forget the name of it, but it's basically a professional black women's uh, group. And it, it is a vertical slice of the organization. So you have some senior VPs and you have frontline folks, and they, are, they talk about things that are unique. To their experience, which you or I, old white boomers, might not and probably never experience and would not have solutions for.
1: Absolutely. Rick, thank you so much for this conversation.
0: Pleasure to be with you, and I am much obliged.